0: Step by step, catch your breath, the air is thinning as we climb. Stocks keep rising, risk is piling higher all the time. Every sector, every size, take your pick, it's no surprise. The bull's in charge, he's living large, looking for bigger prize. The Fed's not moving, jobs are improving, corporate profits are pretty strong. Money's cheap, liquidity's deep, what in the world could go wrong? Something will. It's part of the drill of navigating through market cycles. So we stay attuned. We read the room. We adjust our holdings and recycle. Hope for the best. Plan for the worst. Ease our minds of all that stress. Stay informed and be forewarned when you ride the Investopedia Express. Well, welcome back and welcome aboard. If you have a fear of heights, don't look down. U.S. equity markets enter the week at record highs yet again. They come in bunches and they're bunching up. The S&P 500 clocked its 64th record high of the year on Friday, closing in on the all-time record of 78 set back in 1995. The Dow, the NASDAQ, the Russell 2000... Also at all-time highs, but it's also high times across the capital markets and among key economic indicators. Stocks, U.S. home prices, the market of all cryptocurrencies, job openings, and wages, all at all-time highs. How about inflation? It's at a 30-year high. high anxiety. Whenever you're near. Mel Brooks, folks, nobody does it like Mel. Inflation is still sky high, especially among the key commodities that we kind of need to live on this planet. Gasoline up 128% from a year ago. Crude oil up 123%. Heating oil up 122%. Coffee, yep, we need that, up 101%. Natural gas up 81%. Cotton, 67%. Aluminum, 44%. Corn, 43%. Copper, 41%. Sugar, up 33%. You get it and you feel it. Even though wages are rising, your bills are rising right along with them. The Federal Reserve knows this, but there's not a lot it can do about it other than raising interest rates. But it's not planning to do that yet. We understand the difficulties that high inflation poses for individuals and families, particularly those with limited means to absorb higher prices for essentials such as food and transportation our tools cannot ease supply constraints. That was Chair Jerome Powell at the FOMC's press conference last week. While the Fed did say it would begin tapering its monthly bond purchases by $15 billion a month starting this month, raising interest rates is off the table, at least until the middle of next year. The U.S. labor market is improving as 531,000 jobs were added last month and the unemployment rate ticked down to 4.6%. 18 million of the 22 million jobs lost since the beginning of the pandemic have returned, but the labor force participation rate at 61.6% has barely budged all year. You know who likes these rising commodity prices? Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. That's right. The Omaha, Nebraska-based conglomerate reported a double-digit increase in its operating profit thanks to the monster rebound in its railroad, utilities, and energy businesses from the pandemic, while its cash pile sits at a record high as Warren Buffett's waiting for the fat pitch. Operating earnings from its railroad, utilities, and energy segment grew 11% year-over-year to $3 billion in the third quarter. While Berkshire may be better known for its insurance businesses, it's a huge player in the energy and transportation industries with subsidiaries including MidAmerican Energy, Pacific Corp, Berkshire Hathaway Energy, NetJets, and the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad, one of the largest cargo rails in the world. We love that sound. At the end of September, Berkshire's cash pile reached a record $149.2 billion, up from $144.1 billion in the second quarter. Buffett hasn't made a sizable acquisition in the last few years. Instead, Berkshire's been buying back its own shares with both hands. Berkshire repurchased $7.6 billion of its own stock in the third quarter, bringing the nine-month total to $20.2 billion. In 2020, Berkshire bought a record $24.7 billion of its own stock. Nobody loves buybacks like Buffett. Buybacks are so simple. I mean it. Uh, it's a way of distributing cash to shareholders. Speaking of cash, here comes another wave of government spending. House Democrats finally passed the 1.2 trillion infrastructure bill and it's headed to the president's desk for his signature. The 2,702- page bipartisan bill contains just $550 billion dollars in new spending, and here's where it's headed. billion for roads and bridges, $66 billion for railroads, we love that, $65 billion for the power grid, $65 billion to expand broadband, $55 billion for water infrastructure, $47 billion for cybersecurity and climate change initiatives, $39 billion for public transit, $25 billion for airports, $21 billion for the environment like cleaning up Superfund and brownfield sites, $17 billion for ports, $11 billion for quote-unquote safety $8 Eight billion for water infrastructure, seven and a half billion for electric vehicle charging stations, and seven and a half billion dollars for electric school buses. The stock market loves government spending, and transport stocks, if you hadn't noticed, are at record highs. Speaking of stocks, the flip flop from last year's winners to today's losers can make you think that a lot of investors think that the pandemic's over. Shares of Peloton have run off the track, down fifty-five percent in the past twelve months, with most of that coming last week. The exercise equipment company warned that sales would fall by a billion dollars this year as demand for its spin bikes and treadmills slows way down. Shares of Zoom video communications are down 47% in the past 12 months because basically we're all Zoomed out. On the flip side, bring it Angus. Shares of Live Nation, the concert and event promoter are up 120% in the past year and we're hitting the gym again with shares of Planet Fitness up 43% over the past 12 months. Let's get set up for the week ahead. The consumer is in the spotlight again as the Department of Labor will report the Consumer Price Index for October. It was up 5.4% back in September, and prices have shown little signs of easing. Consumer sentiment has been pretty weak, too, but retail sales have yet to show it. Something to keep an eye on as we head towards the holidays. We'll also get producer prices on Tuesday. Those have been pretty lofty as well. Is the great resignation real or just another financial media meme? We'll find out on Friday when the Labor Department releases the Jolt Survey. That's the Job Openings and Labor Turnover Report. The last reading for August showed that 4.3 million Americans straight up quit their job that month. Month. The Delta variant may have been a factor back then, or maybe they're just looking for a better opportunity. We'll find out on Friday. We'll also get one of the last big heapings of earnings reports this week with companies reporting including AMC, Disney, Coinbase, NVIDIA, and AMD. The outlooks from those chip makers will be in focus given the supply crunch that's impacting everyone from Apple to the automakers. As for Coinbase, pay close attention to the revenue it reports from crypto and options trading. We know activity has slowed since the spring, but just by how much is what we want to know since that's how Coinbase makes its money. As for AMC, well, the OG meme stock was back in the hopper last week, rising 18% ahead of its earnings. Not that investors really care about its earnings. The theater chain is in a radical transformation as retail investors have become its owners, and CEO Adam Aaron is listening. Stay tuned for my conversation with my buddy Melissa Lee on that subject coming up in just a few minutes. And it's another dynamic week in the IPO market. Despite no sales history, electric vehicle maker Rivian Automotive will become the largest IPO of the year when it starts trading on Wednesday. The company, backed by Amazon, among other investors, is trying to raise $10 billion, valuing it around $53 billion. No sales. Why not? And Hertz is coming back to the public market. The rental car company drove in and out of bankruptcy amid the pandemic, but it's trying to ride the highway of heavy demand. It hit a curb last week when it said that it had a deal to buy 100,000 Teslas for its fleet. Tesla CEO Elon Musk denied a contract was ever signed, but that's not stopping the re-IPO of Hertz from happening as the company seeks a valuation of close to $14 billion. The timing might be right given how meme stock investors piled into shares of Avis rental car last week, sending the stock up 59% at one point after it reported better than expected earnings. Speaking of Elon Musk, keep an eye on shares of Tesla this week. Musk polled his millions of Twitter fans as to whether he should sell 10% of his holdings in his company to avoid the proposed so-called tax on unrealized gains. 58% of his followers voted in favor But Musk was likely to sell anyway, given that he owns $200 billion worth of Tesla stock and options, and the drumbeat around higher taxes for billionaires is getting louder. Elon's tax bill this year will be a cool $15 billion. Do you have diamond hands? Do you hodl? Are you an ape? We all are, but are you a breed of the new apes that have turned the stock market upside down in the past year? If so, you are indeed a part of a revolution that has shaken the foundations of Wall Street, and it may never be the same. Millions of new traders and investors have joined the stock market in the past year with a mission to make fast money by bidding up highly shorted stocks while sticking it to traditional Wall Street investors. No one has followed this more closely than Melissa Lee, the host of CNBC's Fast Money and the host of a terrific new documentary on CNBC called How the Apes Cracked Wall Street. She's also one of my favorite people in the world, not just in this business. Welcome to The Express, Melissa. So good to have you here.
1: Oh, it's so great to be with you, Caleb.
0: This documentary is terrific, folks. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on CNBC.com. And you really have been sort of documenting, reporting on this sort of revolution that's been happening inside day trading forums, also inside these storied institutions on Wall Street. What brought you to the documentary? Why did you decide that it was time to do it?
1: When the GameStop frenzy unfolded back in January and then AMC quickly followed after that, I think all of us who are watching the story unfold thought, This was an interesting phenomenon. We didn't really know what to make of it. And we didn't know how long it was going to last. And I think the fact that seven months after that point, we were still watching the story. We were still seeing this movement grow. I mean, you could see the commitment to the stock and to the cause on social media platforms like Twitter and and Reddit. That really told me that it was time to tell the story, that this was something more than just a flash in the pan. It was something more than an event that was going to take place over a couple of weeks and then end. This is lasting. And so to me, that was fascinating that this movement could endure and could actually have people on Wall Street taking a look, taking a look at the issues that they were talking about and really saying, you know what, this is a force that is going to be here in this market.
0: Without question. And You and I have covered many different market cycles. We were there in the early days of the internet bubble, 1999, and beyond that, we saw that collapse. We saw the great financial crisis. We saw what happened, obviously, in the last year and a half. But there is a through line from the financial crisis to where we are today that brought a lot of these people into the market. Now, COVID and being at home and trading at home and the fast movement of stocks contributed to it. That may be some of the kindling under this fire, but this has been brewing a long time. What did you discover?
1: I think that there is a confluence of events. And you touch on a lot of them, but this whole notion of stick it to the man, it was born decades before this moment today that we're witnessing. It was born out of the great financial crisis. It was born out of Occupy Wall Street. The thought that Wall Street was able to make money, to collapse and implode to get bailouts and not have any sort of ramifications with their actions when the little guy, which in this case is oftentimes people's families or parents or grandparents, they lost their savings, they may have lost their houses, they lost their livelihoods. That really had a profound impact on this generation that's coming of age right now. The pandemic being locked up at home and social media, that was that's an important driver to all of this. And and the ability for these people to converge, to amplify their voices, It was sort of the the perfect mix of ingredients to create this movement that we're witnessing.
0: Yeah. I mean, without Twitter, without Reddit and Wall Street Bets, without a lot of these forums and even YouTube, some of these folks have, have audiences that are bigger than ours. You wouldn't have all of this. But then there was this notion of also let's, uh, among this group, let's find the stocks that Wall Street is shorting the most, the ones that are beaten down the most, whether it was an AMC, a GameStop, even a BlackBerry, which doesn't make blackberries anymore. They were finding their way to these stocks and bidding them up. What was it? Was it the fact that they wanted to stick it to the short selling institutions? Or is there a fundamental belief in some of these companies? Or is there a lot of crossover there where they actually believed in some of these companies, but they also wanted to stick it to the man and make money in the process?
1: I think that there's a lot of crossover. And I think for some people, it, it's driven by pure profit. They saw what happened with GameStop and Roaring Kitty, and they thought, if I can tri- double or triple my money and pay my mortgage off for the year, that's fantastic. For a lot of these people, it is stick it to the man. It is, let's show them how smart we are. Because, you know, identifying these stocks, if a hedge fund had found GameStop and found a way that that sort of technical aspect of all these short sellers piling in and creating this massive short squeeze. If a hedge fund had found that strategy, we would probably be celebrating that. Wow, take a look at the massive returns. They found this great, this technicality that no one had spotted. And yet this happened amongst retail investors. And so it, it sort of turned Wall Street on its head in some ways. And so once the retail investors got a taste of that. They thought, you know what? We can do this. We have the power. We're just as smart as they are. We are capable of making money and being smart about it. And that's exactly what they did. But I, I do think, as you mentioned, it's it's a confluence of events here taking place. They want to make money. A lot of them were impacted negatively you know, economically because of the pandemic. And they all also want to stick it to the man.
0: Traditionally, a lot of folks may have referred to retail investors and these day traders as dumb money. But if you look at some of the analysis behind a lot of the folks, and some of them are in your documentary, but a lot of folks out there, retail traders that do their own work, whether it's the fundamental analysis, the technical analysis, looking through prisms that traditional Wall Street doesn't look at, there's some very smart analysis out there. But At the same time, when we look at some of the returns for some of these meme stocks, they are way, way, way overblown. And I think everybody knows that, including these people, right?
1: I don't know. It depends on who you're talking to. There there are definitely some in the group that think that AMC, for instance, will go to 10,000 or even 100,000. I'm not sure mathematically that you can actually get there given the size of the stock market and the size of AMC right now. But there is that belief. and, And part of it is a fundamental belief that this is an American institution. It will never go away. People will always want to go to the movies Kitchens and restaurants coexist, and so can movie theaters and streaming. Then there are some other people who are like, you know what? I'm along for the ride. And I think a short squeeze can create the kind of returns that we're talking about. There's nothing fundamental about it. They look at the technical analysis. They take, they, there's a belief that there are naked shorts, that there's hidden short selling in the market that's not told by the numbers, and they're playing for that sort of technical aspect of a massive spike in the stock.
0: And they've seen it, it's worked. So if it's worked there, it's going to work with, with some other stocks potentially. And we've seen some very strange behavior. But I love part of the docs, the parts of the documentary where you actually explain these terms, which is why people come to Investopedia. Such clean explanations, folks. Check out the documentary, the explanations on naked shorting, short selling, really smart and well done. So congratulations on that. Let's come back to AMC for a second because it was the poster child of this, along with GameStop. But the CEO who you have and you feature extensively in the Documentary Adam Aaron has embraced the apes. They even call him the Silverback Gorilla of the Apes because he's basically admitting to you that they saved his company. Nobody was going to the movies. There was no timeline for when we were going to the movies, even though movie theaters are open, they're barely full right now. But this guy said, wait, there's a revolution happening. I'm going to listen to these people. Not only does he listen, Melissa, he goes and does interviews with these people. What kind of a character is Adam Aaron, a real legacy CEO from some big companies now running this that has been the the poster child of the meme stock mania?
1: Yeah. I mean, he was a CEO of Starwood, of Norwegian Cruise Line. So this is a, I don't want to say old school CEO, but the traditional kind of CEO that came into AMC. And he sort of views this as, as his mission to save this company. And that's the way he viewed it through the pandemic. And there was a massive turnover in control in terms of a shareholder base. 80% of his shareholder base are now retail investors, 4.1 million retail investors own AMC. So he had to recognize that this was his base, just like uh, you know any other CEO saying that TryAn or any other big sort of hedge fund or activist is, is a major holder. He is recognizing that these apes are the major shareholder in his stock. And so he's going to communicate the the way they want him to communicate, which is via Twitter, via YouTube. You know, he said he was never really active on Twitter and now he tweets and regularly his tweets get 10,000 likes or, you know, whatever the astronomical number is. So he's playing the game and it's a game for survival. And he's fully aware of that and he's grateful. And you know what he says that there are a lot of great ideas that are coming from this ape community, these are younger people, the younger generation, the exact demographic that AMC theaters needs to attract in. So why not take advantage of that? So things like accepting crypto as payment, that came from the community. The idea of making commemorative movie tickets into NFTs, that came from the ape community. Just this week, he tweeted that AMC is going to go into the popcorn business. That's probably also from the ape community. These are all great ideas. It doesn't cost AMC much money. And yet, It's helped the stock.
0: Absolutely. I love the fact that they're now going into the merchandising game and the creating of NFTs of movie posters. Terrific idea. Simple idea. I'll tell you what. He might not have got that at a big shareholder meeting when he was taking proxy questions. This is coming directly to him in DMs or in interviews or in conversations he's having on Twitter or when he's going on Trey Collins, the, uh, Trey's trades, when he's going on his YouTube show. This is stuff that's happening to him in real time and he's reacting pretty quickly to it. So fascinating. But a lot of the, philosophy behind some of these apes is, is that hold hold on forever, hold on for dear life, take it to the moon. We know some people are going to do that, but we also know that a lot of people are going to start selling. And when the selling happens, a lot of people run for the doors at the same time. There's no way everybody makes that much money on this. What's the inherent risk here and the hype and the mania behind all this that brought these people to these stocks, to the stock market, which we like, But at the same time, we know this doesn't always end well.
1: I think the risk is that the stock price matches up with the fundamentals as laid out by Wall Street. And as you know, Caleb, a lot of people on Wall Street do not have rosy projections for AMC, and they don't really predict the movie theater business to come back strong uh, in any sort of way, even to pre-pandemic levels. And so the risk is if, if the stock price actually goes back to reflecting fundamentals, then these people might be hodling. And they might be bag holding in the end. And that's that's the risk. And I asked him about that. I said, Are you worried? Because you know, before I interviewed him, I sent out a tweet saying, you know, I'm gonna interview Adam Aaron today. What what do you guys wanna know? Somebody tweeted to me, I want you to tell Adam Aaron that ten percent of Every paycheck from now on is going to AMC stock, and I asked him specifically about that. Are you worried about people like that who are plowing their hard-earned money into AMC stock? How does this end? He said, "We don't know how it's going to end. All I can do is do my best as CEO, and and that's that, and that's fair."
0: Yeah, he said that many times. We're just living through this, just like you are, and he's right. And you've seen plenty of people in social media, whether it's YouTube, TikTok, whatever, saying. I paid off my student loans thanks to AMC or GameStop or whatever meme stock I bought or whatever cryptocurrency I bought. You see those stories. So a lot of people want to believe that. And in a dislocated economy, like the one we're living through right now, where the K-shape is in full force, right? If you've got equity, if you've got money, if you own your home, if you kept your job, you're doing pretty well. If you're not on that side of it, you're not. And these people look at that as, this could be a life raft. This could change my life. And for some people, a very few amount of people, that's likely, that could happen. But for most people, it usually doesn't happen that way. So there's a concern there for sure. Let's go to the other side of the equation here and talk about some of the the institutions or people or companies that appeared to be or they were maybe villainized by the apes, by the day trading community. And I'm talking about Virtu Capital. I'm talking about Citadel Securities, which brings a lot of IPOs. These are market makers also that help the transaction go through when you actually buy and sell a stock. People don't know that, but when you actually place an order on your Robinhood or your Fidelity or your Schwab, it's going to a market maker to for that trade to happen. Uh, and then there's some money being exchanged there, which could take away from some of your returns. There's a big debate on that. But to sum it all up, there is this other side of the equation, which is these big institutions, which have been making markets and running markets forever, all of a sudden uh, look villainized in the eyes of some of these apes. How did that sort of play out? And how is that playing out today?
1: Um, I, I think that you see it just by what SEC Chair Gary Gensler Gun- is, is starting to address. I, I think that for a long time, it's just viewed that this is the system, that this is the way the market works. And even when this whole retail trading boom started, you sort of looked at a market maker like a Citadel in their virtue and you, you thought, oh, payment for order flow, we're really democratizing the stock market. And yes, that is definitely what has gone on. More people have access to the stock market thanks to zero fee brokers. At the same time, you know it's amazing that it had just been payment for all these terms, dark pools, just taken for granted, you know, it's just, that's just the system. That's just the way it is. That's the best way it is. And this movement is saying, you know, maybe this isn't the best way it is. And and you and I know that at every point in time in history, we could have said, this is the best it's been for the individual investor. And that's the pushback that you get today. This is the best it's been for the individual investor today. They've never had this much access to the markets via free trades. They've never had this much access to information. Everything is great for the retail investor, but these people are saying, you know what? Maybe it's not as great as it can be. And I think it, it took this movement that to get Gary Gensler to actually consider looking at these, the things that we just thought were parts of the system, institutionalized aspects, the way we transact, taken for granted. But why? And we don't have that. <laughs> and so maybe it's not the best way. And so, you know, I look forward to, to seeing how this all shakes out. I hope that it becomes better because I, I do think that there can always be improvements for the retail investor. And we should never sit back and say, this is the best it's been. Sure, it's the best it's been. Doesn't mean it can't get better.
0: Without question. And I think you have some of the characters in your story are asking those questions. These are day traders. They have day jobs, too. This is not the only thing that they do. And I think about Trey Collins, who's pretty famous right now for his traits. He's got a huge account, a big YouTube following. This guy's in the military. But during the early part of the morning, he sets his trades up, and then he does some broadcasts, and then he comes back from his job, and and then he does more of it, and he has created this other living for himself and made quite a bit of money, according to what he told you in the documentary. But this is not a guy that grew up on Wall Street, went into finance from college, or, or has been reporting on it like you and I have for the past couple of decades. This is a guy that just wanted to get into it and is asking smart questions, and he's not the only one. So I think you're right. We're going to see the unpacking of how Wall Street, in quotes, traditionally works, and we're going to find things. And the SEC chair, Gary Gensel, you said it, and he said it on CNBC. They're looking at a payment for order flow. They're looking into the way that Robinhood works with a Virtu or a a Citadel markets to see if there's any collusion or any way that the playing field is not level enough. And we know it's never been level, but couldn't it be more level? And I think you're asking the right questions there.
1: I think that it almost takes a fresh set of eyes sometimes to take a look at something and identify areas where things can be improved. And I think that this group is the fresh set of eyes and they approach it as, why can't it be better for us? You know, We're just a little guy, but we're not dumb and we're here and we're here to stay and we're going to be a force. And so fix it. And I think it's good to have somebody out there always saying, fix it.
0: Yeah, me too. And we you, we do see it in, in cycles, but I think the technology has also made this bonfire a lot harder because individual investors can get SEC information. They can get trading reports from Dart. They know where to look and they're not stupid and they can read company reports. This is not just the domain of financial journalists anymore or investors. This is open to everybody.
1: I mean, think about Zuccotti Park and Occupy Wall Street and how localized that was. And it was about physically being in a park. It's not about a physical presence. It's all about social media presence. It's about digital presence. And that's much easier. To sort of coalesce in terms of the the numbers and the size and scope of this movement. So this is a giant sort of Occupy Wall Street, except it's not in a park. It's on social media. And because of the vast numbers, it means it's around the world, Caleb. It's not just here in the United States. It's around the world. That's why I think it's a little bit different this time in terms of the staying power.
0: The good news, and I think you'll agree with this as well, is that a lot of people joined the stock market. A lot of people started investing for the first time. There's trading, which is a little bit more gambling. But if you do it smartly, you know you, you can make money if you're careful. But it brought a lot of people into this world that you and I have been living in for a long time. And that's a good thing. They, the market investing is the path to creating wealth over time if you do it right and responsibly. The thing that I'm concerned about from where I sit is that I don't like people going into the casino, getting burned right away and saying, this is rigged. I'm out of here. I'm taking my money and leaving and never really giving themselves a chance to build money for the long term. But there's enough people that are actually in it that they may be able to do that.
1: Hopefully they stick around and even if they're in one trade to begin with, they just start learning about how stocks move. They learn about technical analysis. They learn about looking up SEC filings, they're in a community that that urges them to look at other stocks. It's just the beginning. I mean, if we can just pe- get people to dip their toe in the water and see how it feels, I hope that they will stick around. I think the, the more people in the stock market, the better, particularly for this younger generation. As you mentioned, the earlier you start investing, the better off you'll be longer term. Um, and so if we can get people interested earlier, I think that's always, always a good thing.
0: Yeah, we say the best day to start investing was yesterday. The second best day is today. And, but that's investing and we want people to learn. But we know that this movement and a lot of what's gone on in the last year and a half has brought so many people in. We see it in our, in our own readership and investopedia. And the questions they're asking are the right questions. So I think it's a good thing. And your documentary did a terrific job of really opening this up so that everybody can understand it. Congratulations.
1: Thank you, Caleb. I really appreciate that.
0: Melissa Lee's documentary, How the Apes Crack Wall Street on CNBC. You can find it on YouTube too. Tremendous stuff and also catch her every day at Fast Money and wherever you're appearing on CNBC because every time I look, I see you on TV and it just makes me smile. So good to have you on the Express, my friend.
1: Thank you, Caleb. Good to see you.
0: It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Dominique in good old Austin, Texas, Hook 'em Horns. Dominique suggests margin this week, and we like that term because it has a few meanings. Margin could refer to operating margins, which represent the percentage of sales that's turned into profits, but it could also mean the collateral that an investor has to deposit with their broker or an exchange to cover the credit risk for borrowing money to buy stocks. Borrowing money to buy stocks is referred to as buying on margin, and the amount of money you've borrowed to buy the stock is called margin debt. Tracking the total amount of margin debt used by investors to buy stocks can give us a pretty good sense of just how confident traders are about the future. The more confident they are, the more they tend to borrow, and they've been borrowing lately big time. According to recent data from FINRA, investors have levered up $903 billion to buy stocks. While that's a little lower than the $911 billion they borrowed back in August, margin debt is still near all-time highs. That's a lot of confidence, but if things turn south, those traders are going to have some serious margin calls to deal with. Great suggestion, Dominique. We'll be sending you a pair of the always classy Investopedia socks in the mail, and we'd like to see you sporting those on your next stroll down to the 4th Street Warehouse District in lovely downtown Austin, Texas. We're going to let AMC CEO Adam Aaron take us out this week. As you heard in my interview with CNBC's Melissa Lee, Aaron credits retail investors and the trading apes we were talking about with saving his company and helping him transform it. Here's a clip from the CNBC documentary, How the Apes Cracked Wall Street.
1: Did the retail investors save AMC?
0: We had saved AMC first by raising a lot of money, but then the retail investors arrived in huge numbers. And yes, they saved AMC and that's when they saved AMC because of the retail investors. We raised another $1,250,000,000 in May and June of 2021. And that last billion dollars is what really will, I think, guarantee that we survive through this pandemic. Watch the complete documentary if you can. It is fascinating. Special thanks to Melissa Lee for joining us this week, and thanks to all of you for riding with us on the Express. We'll talk again a little further on down the line.